Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is social scientist, improviser, actor, writer and musician Will Minan. Will Minan was formerly a researcher for the United Way of the Midlands and for the Omaha Public Schools, leaving to pursue a career in comedy in Chicago before love brought him back to the Midwest. He earned a BS in psychology and sociology and an MS in industrial and organizational psychology from the University of Nebraska. He is also a graduate of the Comedy College, Chicago's I.O. Theater, as well as training at Annoyance and Second City. Minan is a social scientist, improviser, actor, writer, and musician. His parents would love it if in that list of hyphenates were words like married and parent. He currently is living in Omaha and looking for full-time work, so if you know of anything interesting, let him know. You can find him drinking coffee at Lola's, adjusting the shades to reduce the glare on his oversized laptop. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. I'm glad to be here. Statistics and comedy, a match made, uh, if not in heaven, then then in you. Right, yeah. Uh, let's start with data. Uh, okay. Tell us more about your professional background in the research field. Sure. So I, I um, as you set up before me there, I, I got my master's in industrial organizational psychology, which um, sounds as impressive as it is. <laughs> and the emphasis... Um, I always tell people in um, IO psychology, as with any field of psychology, really, is on measurement. The difference in the subfields of psychology uh, are the different things that you are attempting to measure. What forms of human behavior or thought or um, personality are, are you attempting to codify or quantify or understand? Uh, my general background is just the ability, psychometrics, statistical methodology, Experimental design, quasi-experimental design, and then I.O., uh, which is the the shortened industrial organizational, which uh, it is not lost on me that I eventually ended up at the I.O. theater. I also worked for a while um, for the School of New Learning at DePaul University, uh, which is uh, the acronym being SNL. So I have ended up uh, in two places that are not quite uh, what I was shooting for. So there's no plan to this other than no, no, the absolutely. serendipity of acronyms. <laughs> right, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this kind of applied degree in in research design and methodology, I eventually applied uh, in the context of K-12 education when I worked for Omaha Public Schools uh, and later in just kind of the general nonprofit uh, and foundation world. Uh, and then um, when I was living in Chicago as kind of my supplementary, well, my primary income in post-secondary at DePaul University and, and Loyola. Um, so a lot of the outcomes that we are measuring in education have to do with whether or not the curriculum and programming um, and interventions that are being applied are successful or to what degree, and are some interventions um, more or less successful than others. So that was kind of the, that's the broad strokes of what I was tasked to do. What was it? perhaps going as far back as you need to into your childhood or some other moment of epiphany or recognition that this was the academic field that you should enter into and, and, and make that choice not once but twice, you know, moving from a bachelor's and, and also pursuing a master's too. Right, yeah. I think um, a lot of my choices in this area are 
rooted very much in um, pragmatism. So I, I when I went to um, undergraduate, I started in a pre-med field. I made it through the daunting year of organic chemistry, which tends to be the, the course that separates the wheat from the chaff as it relates to whether or not you're going to become a, a medical professional of, of some kind. And I got done with that year, and I think I just decided, like, I just don't think this is really for me. Not because organic chemistry is a subject matter that you carry forward with, uh, but I think it's it's more that um, the amount of information that you had to just cram in your brain and then um, spit back out. It just I didn't find that process terribly compelling of just memorization. Um, so I was just like, I don't want to do this. Uh, I started taking just a kind of a survey of courses as a junior. So I took psych courses, social courses. I took comparative religion classes. I took uh, radio production classes. I just started doing a lot of different things. And I pretty quickly narrowed down to psychology and sociology. But I think I was um, drawn in by kind of some of the more like uh, the kinds of studies that you couldn't get away with anymore, like the Milgram uh, experiment kinds of stuff uh, or the prison experiment, like things where you got at some really interesting or um, things like um, oh, experiments related to uh, helping behavior and the conditions under which people are more or less likely to help Kitty Genovese's story in, in New York. Uh, bystander effect. Yeah. So the idea that if you want someone to come to your aid, the best condition under which that will happen is when there's fewer people around. Those were the things that excited me. And those are all more, those are more in the realm of social psychology. But the only thing you can do with a social psychology PhD, or for the most part, what people do is they're in academia. And I didn't really want to do that. IOPsych is a, an applied field. Uh, and one of the few uh, in the kind of psychology pantheon. <laughs> And the department chair of the school I was at at the time was a, an IO psych um, professor. So uh, I made a choice that was informed, um, but I can't say it was rooted in some great passion for IO psychology. And then when I got to school, um, I decided a year in, I don't want to do this. And it was so much statistics. And that didn't feel right to me either. And I didn't know it was going to be so much statistics, but I had a, a TA position. My school was paid for, and uh, I had a job um, teaching Psych 101, which I did enjoy. So I thought, well, I'm not going to quit. I just well get the master's degree and uh, keep the job that I like doing. And coming out of school, I tried not to work in my field. <laughs> well, I had no student loan debt. I mean, there was nothing that was like pushing me. I have to get work in this field. So yeah, I the, the my I feel like my choices uh were very much rooted in pragmatism and and had no long-term strategy to it at all. So let's switch gears in because I want to draw the connection between organizational psychology and and the field that you're talking about, data-heavy, research-driven, uh practical pragmatic experience and the world of comedy. What was it that drew you to comedy. I mean, like a, a lot of other people, I think, um, in their, I don't know, junior high years, your teenage years, uh, you spend a lot of time hanging out with your friends and having a laugh. Uh, and watching, you know, sketch comedy uh, and, and Monty Python uh, films and uh, 
yeah, just uh, just having a laugh. And I, I watched a ton of SNL. I would do SNL characters the next morning at the, the breakfast table. I, I loved comedy growing up. Um, it never occurred to me being from, I'm from South Sioux City, Nebraska. Um, it never occurred to me that those people that I saw on television, that there was some pathway by which they became comedians. I just thought that someone saw them being funny at a party <laughs> or on a street corner, you know, the comedic uh, version of busking or something. And then they were on television. Like I, I just couldn't, couldn't come up with or fathom a, a, a you know, some kind of incremental path to it. So I just kind of put it out of my head as something that I could ever do. Um, and I think I was, I was in my late twenties and a few things transpired in my life, personal life and professional life where I just thought, well, I'm not having, I'm not having very much fun. And I knew adulthood was supposed to be a little bit more difficult than, than being a teenager or in college. But I didn't think it was supposed to be as banal as I was finding it to be. And it's just grindy. You know what I mean? Just like this, this feels very day to day. I do not enjoy this process of getting up and going to work, and hitting the gym, eating, going to sleep and doing it again. Um, so I was just looking for something to kind of interrupt that energy uh, in my life. I, I remember 30 Rock, the show 30 Rock um, came out about that time and it was it's Tina Fey as head writer and showrunner and, and lead. And I loved her in SNL. And for some reason, whatever, I just looked at like her Wikipedia page. And she, like a lot of comedians, was a Chicago comedian and uh, went to uh, went through the IO theater program, um, was on Second City main stage, you know, got trained in annoyance. And then as I started to read more about those theaters and all of the people connected to them, which were all of the comedians that um, I loved, or for the most part, or, or at least that was, you know, that accounted for a large um, number of those people. I just decided to go to Chicago and do a, a weekend intensive at Second City, which was two days of an introduction to improv. And I thought, well, this is the thing. And I think it was all, uh, you know, if I would have come across it when I was 21, I would have said it, this was the thing. It was people, it was adults playing with one another in the moment on stage for laughs. And that, that just totally changed my life. Park the car at the side of the road You should know Time's tide will smother you And I will too When you laugh about people Who feel so very lonely Their only desire is to die But I'm afraid It doesn't make me smile
What was it in you that made the light come on, as it were? Is there something um, that you can recognize in yourself and, and maybe when you found that when you were a child that told you comedy is something that I want to explore seriously? Yeah, I, I think that anyone who starts to explore comedy, I think there's something about it that's fairly innate or that is learned at a pretty young age, um, that you have the capacity to make other people laugh, that you understand um, not only what is funny, but why it's funny. like. Uh, at kind of a a core level you might understand later at a intellectual level why something is effective like well, I'm, I'm violating your expectations between the setup and a punchline or or something like that or i'm using um hyperbole in a specific way but you innately know those things um and i think i just knew how to do those things and there's just nothing that feels better than making people laugh it's not something you ever get tired of. I don't think you ever think to yourself, well, that was a really quality laugh I got as, as someone and that was not nearly as satisfying as I thought it would be. It's equally satisfying every single time. <laughs> um, so I think I just knew how to do it. So when I found an environment in which they were, they were providing a structure for it, for you to get to those laughs, and um, there was an audience that um, was there to see it happen, and that knew what you were doing, that, that were familiar with this idea of, of improv. And, you know, even if it's improvised, there is structure and form um, and conventions that, like, people, you know, people understand. I just thought, yeah, this, this totally fits with everything I know. Timing is another thing that you just kind of have or you don't have. And that's another thing that knowing, like, how long to wait before you say something or... um if this, you know, moment requires a, a certain degree of, of yeah, maybe remaining silent is, is the correct choice to make. But just knowing that intuitively those are the choices. And then having those affirmed in a kind of a classroom setting where you're learning to, to improvise. When you're getting laughs, you're like, yeah, I know, I know how to do this. It's not lost on me, not only that the acronyms a little like the tarot cards or the stars predicted that you were obviously going to be following a career in comedy, given the similarities. Right. It seems ironic, though, too, that you were interested in this field of psychology, which, as you mentioned earlier, is involved with the study of human behavior and their personalities, and how I think comedians are, are, are themselves a well-examined species for their the psychological makeup of this yearning for laughs. And at the same time, the audience's potential skepticism about how balanced, how balanced they are right. uh, in, in terms of that need. Is there a kinship between the academic field that you were following and perhaps some of the psychological aspects of comedy as a form and comedians as people? Yeah, I think psychology is a, a an attempt to understand human behavior at, at an individual and a group level, and that's what you know it name your favorite stand-up comedian and, and they're spending a certain amount of time um, unearthing what are the motivations, what are their individual motivations um, that explain their behavior or what are the motivations explaining other people's behavior. That's why uh, comedians often get less interesting the more famous they get because they're not allowed to just observe and they're not observing um, the behavior of um, I think they're not 
surrounding themselves with a, a, a general audience. As often, their friends become other, primarily other comedians. And that happens anyway, even if you're not successful. <laughs> um, but uh, you're also in kind of a rarefied air uh, as a personality uh, financially. Um, you know, I've heard Chris Rock talk about like, I, you know, comedians need to be able to sit on a park bench and just watch people interact. So, yeah, I think the two are, are highly intertwined. Um, and in improv and sketch, you do a lot more, uh, of acting in character. Stand up is, is some heightened version of yourself on stage. Typically, there are people that totally play characters. Um, but improv and sketch allow you the opportunity to play more put on the coat of char character more um, more deeply, or a heavier coat, I would say. And those, uh, I think, are most effective um, characters when they are representative of someone that we all know, like archetypally. It's that kind of person. Uh, and so the laughs derive from this kind of person doing the things that kind of person is want to do. And then you just change the set of circumstances that surround them. So you made this choice that Chicago was the place to go to invest yourself fully in the craft and practice of comedy. Tell me about that decision and the implications, um, maybe the courage and fortitude you had to find to do it, the practical considerations, um, the reaction to this leap and, and how that transition came about. Uh, so I went to Chicago for a couple of those kind of weekend uh, classes. And um, stuck around and, and would watch shows at night, would watch Second City's main stage show. Um, I'd go to I.O. and, and watch um, shows Friday and Saturday night, um, which are, you know, kind of the, the, the main ensembles. Of, but not necessarily. But Friday and Saturday night are great ensembles. Then. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to move here and do this. But I had to unwind some certain things. I still remain at my core, I think, uh, a very pragmatic person. It's a result of being, uh, I think, a Midwesterner, a Nebraskan. Is <laughs> a result of having parents that are incredibly pragmatic and 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 really pounded it in my head, or would ask if I would assert like the, the this is what I'd like to do. Um, the questions that followed all had to do with well, how are you going to pay your bills? I mean, it's um, I've always thought that parents are more interested in their children um, being secure than they are happy. It's the wrong question to ask, is my child happy as an adult? The proper question is like, are they, do they have enough money? <laughs> Can they pay the, if I am no longer here, are they going to be okay in terms of their general well-being? Um, so it took me a couple years to kind of unwind my life uh, in Omaha. I started um, taking some classes, uh, improv classes at what became the Backline Theater. And it started in this uh, performance space I was running with a couple friends of mine in town and um, writing sketch shows and uh, just trying to put myself on stage as, as much as I could. And then, yeah, then I just uh, waited until it seemed like I, well, I had enough money and uh, I'd run out of, of opportunities in, in Omaha for the time being. And I got some encouragement uh, along the way that I, I wasn't terrible at this thing. Um, and that's what I said I would do. I'd set out and let, you know, kind of the world tell me, like, should I keep going or uh, am I done? So I moved and it was, uh, it was incredible. The opportunities are somewhat endless in that town. It's a great comedy town. Um, it's also a great 
town to learn um, what your style, approach, and voice are because you're somewhat um, separated from the industry. I mean, there is industry in Chicago, but it, not to the extent, obviously, that there is in L.A. and New York. So, so what was the plan, as it were, insofar as you had a, a strategy to get to Chicago and to go about the process of learning the craft and building this career? Yeah, I mean, at this point, uh, the process, like the path, is pretty well known um, because all these, all of these comedians have have gone through this process, and these theaters are now major institutions uh, and are kind of feeders for um, the entertainment sector comedically. So you just show up and you just sign up for classes at um, I.O. Annoyance in, in Second City, and you take classes at all of those theaters. And then you audition for or get placed on house ensembles or there's different levels of ensembles at each of those theaters. Um, or you do shows in bars um, and basements and house parties. And, you know, you just do whatever you can. And then you see what, you know, the, the next the, the step beyond that is you get an acting agent and you start going out for auditions and you start getting showcases um, that are industry related. So when industry people show up in town and want to see a certain number of people, theater, those theaters typically will put up 10 or 15 people and you do solo material, the solo sketch, essentially characters, the kinds of characters you would see in SNL if they were just doing like a solo performance. Um, and that kind of is, that's the path towards getting work, hopefully. When I moved to the city, um, I think A.D. Bryant and Cecily Strong had just gotten on SNL. They both came directly out of uh, I.O. That's where they did their audition for SNL. So it was just like, yeah, I'll just take classes. I'll perform uh, with people. I'll put up shows. You write shows, you can put them up. Um, there's tons of venues. You get to know a, a lot of people. Talk about your experiences then, because you were there for quite a while. I was there for seven years. Okay. Yeah. So maybe share some of the experiences um, and milestones along that journey. Yeah. Getting chosen for a, a house team or a house ensemble at the IO Theater was kind of my big first win. They're called Herald Teams. The Herald is a uh, an improv form uh, that was created by Del Close, who is the founder of the IO Theater. Del Close and Turner Helpern. 
And it was called the Herald because uh, he had come up with the structure and somebody said, well, what should we call it? It's a reference to the Beatles being asked what their haircut was called. And George um, says, Arthur. And so Del Close apparently said, well, let's call it Harold. But that house ensemble was kind of my big first break because you're performing every week at the theater. Uh, you got a regular ensemble of 10 people. Um, that's your first kind of uh, foot in the door at that theater. I performed in a couple different teams. And then once you're in at any one theater at that level, you can put up shows. Um, you know, you can pitch shows to the creative director and, and put up sketch shows and I produced a storytelling show. I did a, a sketch show called The Alex Tremont Variety Hour, which was hosted by a man who was a, a variety show host uh, in the 1950s and then had himself cryogenically frozen uh, because his wife cheated on him with the, the band leader and then was unfrozen in the modern era. Uh, and, and so this was a live variety show that I put up. That was super fun. Shot a lot of video stuff um, with friends for you know, YouTube and, um, for festivals. Um, and then my, um, my biggest opportunity for an, an opportunity <laughs> was, uh, I did one of the showcases, the solo showcases for SNL. That was probably three years ago, three or four years ago. Um, yeah, it was 15 people, uh, in this, this showcase. Uh, Lauren Michaels was in the theater with, uh, his, casting director and sometimes a head writer. I can't remember who else he had there. And that's, you know, that's kind of the closest. Out of that, I got an acting agent uh, and started going out for commercials and the uh, Chicago Emergency Services shows uh, all shot in Chicago. And Chicago Med, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, uh, Chicago uh, Trash Removal. Like, you know, it just, it hits all of the government-related sectors. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't get, um, I didn't get a, a call to New York to do my five minutes, uh, on the soundstage, which is the next step of that process. But other people that went up with me at the same time did. Someone was cast from that group of, of, of 15. It was the most nerve wracking experience of my life. Uh, I did a Woody Allen impression, which I know is, um, controversial. Uh, but it was Woody Allen trying to talk um, a man off a bridge. I got reports from friends of mine that were sitting next to Lauren Michaels and that he looked over at the, um, I, and I don't remember his name, but he is the announcer for Jimmy Fallon show, but he is also a writer and, and producer of uh, on SNL, of Weekend Update, I think. And uh, there was a, an acknowledgement of, like, that's a good Woody Allen. So I guess I think if that's as good as it, I'm going to get, I'm, I, I can be pretty happy if that's in fact what happened. <laughs> that's a, or in, unless someone was just telling me, me that to make me feel good about the fact that I, I didn't get uh, any further in the process than I did. Is this what you want on your epitaph? Yeah. Did, yeah. did a good Woody Allen. <laughs> yeah, totally. Absolutely. But you mentioned the word happy. You mentioned that was the pinnacle of this. And I, I don't want in any way to suggest that the entirety of this experience wasn't anything other than um, you know decadent and lavish and fun and frivolous, while right. at the same time immensely hard work, sure, but worth it in and of itself. Yeah, but it came to an end, and so um, not to leave Chicago prematurely, as it were, but we sort of hit this point where you've talked about this pinnacle. What, what was it that made you think, oh, I 
do or do not have a career in comedy. I do or do not stay in Chicago. Yeah, that was tough. Um, I mean, after that, I spent a couple years auditioning uh, as an actor and then continuing to to perform at the theater and put up sketch shows. And, and um, I shot a web series with, with some friends of mine called um, Feel Better that has um, talking um, furniture, uh, very much based on, on um, Pee Wee's Playhouse. And I'm, you know, I still have that um, submitted to festivals. I, I n- never quite think I'm entirely out of the game. I think I did realize uh, while I was auditioning for acting roles that that wasn't the thing for me. And the thing that I uh, I learned is that you can't continue to do something um, simply because you like the the best part of it. Which the best part of acting is being on set. There are so many things that happen before you get on set. And one of those things that happens regularly uh, that I found incredibly unpleasant and unenjoyable was auditioning and preparing for auditions um, and getting a call the or, you know, or an email 24 hours before an audition and saying, hey, we need you at um, such and st- such casting agent uh, agency at this time and then showing up and then they're running 25 minutes behind. Uh, and I've, you know, jumped out of my um, day gig you know i spent 15 bucks on my lift uh on on the way there i want to be gone from like one to two i'm going to be gone from one to three almost for however long this takes it's going to cost me 30 bucks uh in travel i'm going to get there they're going to change the sides like you know they're going to say hey we're not we're, this isn't the script anymore this is the script um all of those things are just uh that's the the price of admission to being an actor is is that process and I didn't enjoy any of that. I didn't enjoy the, being in the room and auditioning. And granted, I was doing a lot of commercial auditions, and I just don't think they're that much fun. Um, and even the and the TV auditions were were more enjoyable. But really, you walk into a room, um, you stand on a mark, you slate for camera, um, you take two cracks at the the thing that you learned in your living room, uh, and while on the train, <laughs> uh, and then they say thank you for your time, and you walk out. And I just, I, I did, I just didn't like it. I much prefer to write, and I started doing some creative writing um, workshops and, and classes, and thought, well, I think I can do this. I think I can, I can, I think I can write fiction, primarily long form fiction. I think I can do it anywhere. And I started really getting getting excited about the idea of, of doing an MFA in creative writing. Uh, and doing a little residency program, which allows me to kind of live anywhere and, and um, travel a bit for the program. I think I just needed more control over the creative process. Uh, if you're involved in um, the entertainment field, you give so much uh, of the power away to other people in terms of whether you get to work, whether you get paid, what opportunities you have. So I, everything that I've done up to this point, or a majority of it, has been self-produced self-produced sketch shows, self-produced video work. And that's that's everybody who tries to get a job in this industry. You self-produce like crazy. So you're not waiting for permission from someone else. I also turned 41 um, last April. And I started this late. I started This is just a journey that I started later than a lot of people start this journey. I started it, uh, I moved to Chicago when I was 34. And, you know, I, I don't think, um, it's ever too late to do anything, but it might be too late to do things in a certain way. 
And it might be too late for certain outcomes to result from the thing that you're doing. It's not too late to learn. It's not too late to challenge yourself. It's not too late to take risks. Um, and it's not too late to be pleasantly surprised by life. But it might be too late for uh, me in this case to become um, a professional comedic actor who's um, regularly working in television and film. Or at least I, I was losing the, like the, the desire to do the things you had to to get to that place. remember the timing of this but i imagine it was before you went to chicago but people in omaha may be more familiar with you from the satirical online newspaper the omaha tattler yeah <laughs> and uh and also the fact that you self-declared victory as the mayor of the yes. city yeah uh, as part of your mining for mayor campaign mm -hmm. i wonder if you would just share with us a little about um, the background and the content and, and uh, the purpose of those two things. I wonder if we might just jump back to yeah, the, yeah. the Tatler and, and your successful, and congratulations, Matt, your successful <laughs> mayoral campaign, <laughs> and, then, and then think about the future. Mm, yeah. So the Tatler was something, um, uh, I always loved The Onion and read The Onion as a high school kid and, and college. I read The Onion before it was online, uh, you know, there was, and it was still being produced in Wisconsin. So that particular style of headline writing um, and news-based satire or writing from the perspective of a character uh, that was unique to, that it was a denizen of a particular area uh, was just something that I, I felt like that voice was just in my head and would always be something that I could, I could recreate to the, to the best of, of my ability. And I did submit packets uh, to the Onion for their writing fellowship because they're now uh, based in Chicago. Uh, I didn't get a fellowship. That's how you typically start your um, way into the Onion. But I thought, well, I'm not going to wait um, to get permission to write Onion-style headlines. I'll just do it, uh, and I'll just do it specifically about the place that I'm living and the place that I'm from. And I would write, like, national... Um, news story headlines, but I started with the name the Omaha Tatler, and I would just write things about Omaha. And I can't, I, I don't know if there's even a headline that I can, uh, that I recall very specifically, but it was somewhat inspired by also having read the editorial section of the Omaha World Herald for years. And those voices were also very much just 
resonating in my head all the time as potential characters. I always wondered, like, God, this is what is this person's life like? <laughs> I want to know more about this person who's raging uh, about whatever superfluous issue of his, you know, the sounding stones that got moved from uh, wherever, if it, you know. Um, they were moved from uh, Turner Park to that corner near uh, Memorial Park. Memorial, yeah, yeah, or Elmwood. They, they ruined someone's bucolic yeah, vista. absolutely. Uh, and, and the passion that, that someone displayed about this particular issue, I just found, found fascinating. So I would rely on kind of those voices to write the Tatler. And it was an opportunity to just give my, it was a way to give myself um, parameters and, and goals. And so I'd write a, an article a week. Um, and then I just put it on a blog. And that was super fun. Um, the mayoral campaign, I will use this as an opportunity to write history in that um, I had a conversation, many conversations about um, running for mayor for real um, with a friend of mine, Josh France, who I, I know he feels like he never got proper credit for the mine and for mayor campaign um, because we would he would talk about you should run for mayor for real. And eventually, uh, I decided, yeah, that would be, that would be interesting as like a performance art campaign or, um, or performance. And so eventually I did decide it was in the midst of, a um, a runoff? No, not a runoff, a recall. There was a vote to initiate a recall on the mayor. So I decided I was going to announce, early announce my entrance into the mayoral campaign if that recall was successful. And then the recall vote was not successful, the, the vote to just have the recall. And I decided, well, that shouldn't stop me from running for mayor. Why would the like lack of an open seat prevent democracy from doing its job? And so I ran an actual non-official campaign for mayor. And I worked with my friend Wadi White um, to create these, you know, they were inspired by, I saw an exhibit of communist, um, propaganda in Poland from the 1940s through like the 1960s. Um, um, those, that imagery, uh, Kathy Salerano is a, uh, is a great graphic designer that helped me, um, come up with the mine and for mayor logo. Um, so I had posters that I would, I would leave my apartment at like five in the morning and, and post, uh, and tape these posters all over the city and they'd all get taken down within like four or five hours, I'd go drive around the city and check to see if they were still there. And they'd always get taken down. But I was just really driven by this idea of, um, I hadn't created any art in my twenties. Um, and I was motivated to do it. And I, I thought that this is, I don't know how long I'll get to do this. And so I, I wanted to do it as big and as, non-pragmatically as possible. I ended up spending, I imagine, this is somewhat embarrassing, but I, I, if I added up all of my costs for printing and I tried to pay designers and people that worked with me uh, a, you know, some amount of money um, to help me, I, I put on, I declared myself the, the mayor. I had a victory party. I had a band play. Uh, I had, I rented tables. I had food and booze. I spent three to four thousand dollars on this one particular performance. And I've spent more than that on self-producing Feel Better well, was, um, was self-produced with the help of my friends Ann and Jeremy Vulcan and my, uh, my beautiful 
uh, and lovely parents. But yeah, it was something that I just thought was a lot of fun. And I think you can do things like that in smaller communities and really bring a lot of people along uh, in the process. I felt like I wasn't doing it just for myself or for an audience that was showing up for a particular night. Like that thing was had a 12-month arc, I think, by the time I was done. those experiences and the many others and your time in Chicago inform how you think uh, you mentioned being 41 so um, having this reflection influence and inform what you think this next decade might might have for you yeah I mean I I think I'll probably pull back um, somewhat I've tried to concentrate on writing long form fiction short stories novel based stuff and focus my energy a little more tightly around that, like that one specific genre, uh, art form, delivery method, whatever you, you might say, and maintain a writing practice and focus on um, this is my creative output um, is a reflection of a daily practice in the way that one might meditate or exercise or anything else, as well as create a, a more balanced life that also includes the things the aforementioned, like meditation and exercise, which I have totally ignored um, in the pursuit of this other thing for the last 10 years. I mean, I'm not, I, part of the leaving Chicago or leaving, you know, the, the precursor to working in the industry, which is doing shows, um, however many nights a week and self-producing things. So those things happen late. They happen um, during the week um, a lot of the time. They happen at bars. Uh, I, I don't have, my body no longer uh, respects those choices as good ones. <laughs> I'd like to continue to make them. I had, I was continuing to have a tremendous amount of fun. Don't have much self-control. Uh, so I make a lot of bad choices uh, if allowed to do so. And I'm just to a place now where I have to spend more time moving my body, eating better food, and going to bed. Um, and so, at least for the time being, performing out a lot, doing a, a lot of large-scale performance art kinds of projects that eat up a lot of time and resources probably isn't 
in my future over the next couple of years. I want to read you a, a review. Okay. <laughs> uh, I want to read an excerpt from a, a review. So this excerpt is from a 2015 review by Nina Metz in the Chicago Tribune. In this excerpt, she says, The performers plowed forward and had some sharp moments here and there, including a running gag inspired by a viral video from Boston Dynamics featuring a four-legged robot getting kicked, a cringy image that looks exactly like a dog getting kicked. Will Minan was the repeated butt of that joke, and he played it off like an ace. So with that kind of appeal, uh, and... um, (laughs) <laughs> that 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 kind of uh, kudos and esteem. Yeah. What advice would you give to anybody listening who is at any stage of life considering venturing into the world of comedy? I would tell anybody that uh, is inspired to do something that they find scary um, to go do it. It very much changed the course uh, of my life. Um, even if I have kind of circled back to to living here in Omaha. It, it, it was a tremendous amount of fun. I met incredible people. I think that we, I think we set a lot of uh, boundaries uh, in our life that are unnecessary, um, that are related to expectations that we think other people hold of us potentially, or reflect this sense that we can only be um, so many th- things. We can only fulfill so many roles and that it's irresponsible if I'm a, if I'm a parent and if I have a full-time job um, to take some amount of time out of, of my week to go do a couple open mics um, or to take an improv class or to, you know, kind of feed that, that part of, of my personality uh, or my passion. And I, I just think that uh, is a terrible way to go about uh, living life. Um, I think that we can, we can be, uh, we contain multitudes, and I think there's opportunities to to express that, and that people should pursue them. In 60 seconds, uh, a final comment. Uh, researching you, um, I went to LinkedIn, and I see that there is uh, a Will Minan, who is an electrician at Chippewa Valley Technical College. Okay. What do you know about electricity and the profession of being an electrician, Will? Uh, I have two brothers that are electricians. Uh, ACDC refers to alternate current and what is the D? Let's say divergent current. And, uh, also an Australian band, uh, with some killer big time hits. Uh, what else do I know about electricity? Um, yeah, there was a point in time where, uh, we didn't have access to it. The only current uh, that was available was a very dangerous one that shot out of the sky. Now is the time to say goodbye, goodbye. Now is the time to yield a sign. Yield it, yield it. Now is the time to wend our way. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.
I've been in conversation today with social scientist, improviser, actor, writer, and musician Will Minan. Will, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Stuart. comes a time in everybody's life when they must say goodbye. <laughs> that time is now and so... There was a recession at, the, at that time, and it was Alan Greenspan as my corner man in a boxing match um, telling me to, like, uh, you know, keep my chin up or down, whichever was would reduce the number of blows I was taking to my chin. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs> <laughs>